Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. chapter 3 we're going to be looking through verses 7 through 13 if you wouldn't mind praying with me over this Jesus we thank you for this opportunity in your house Jesus we're so thankful for this opportunity to study your word to dive into your word Lord I ask that you would open up our understanding tonight God help us to receive your word in a way that pleases you let the seed of your word fall on good ground tonight. Help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We have been studying the letters to the seven churches that are in the book of Revelation. And we've noticed that in each city, the Lord typically has something good to say and then a rebuke of sorts and then a line of challenge or encouragement. And it's interesting, and I'll, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the church at Philadelphia and one other church have something in common by themselves that the other churches, the other five churches, did not have or do not have. And so we're going to get into that tonight. But first, as we've done previously, we're going to look at the city that this church belonged to and was attempting to evangelize. Philadelphia was out of these seven churches, or rather seven cities. The city of Philadelphia was the last of them to be established. It was a city that was rich in agriculture. It was the type of land that the city was built on and around uh was great for growing things. There were lots and lots of religious temples in the city, so many uh, religious temples that the city of Philadelphia was often called Little Athens. It was that place of worship, had so many temples. It was a city that was built along a key road, and because of this, it was considered to be the gateway to the east, in the same sense that St. Louis in its day was considered the gateway to the west. 
the city of Philadelphia was known for its earthquakes. It experienced two extremely devastating earthquakes, one in 17 AD and one in 60 AD. Um, the emperor at the time, Tiberius in AD 17, actually helped them rebuild the city from the ruins. And because of this, the city built a monument in his honor and began worshiping him. Interesting how that stuff happens. So that's the city that the Church of Philadelphia is in. And of course, we know Philadelphia, uh, similar to our Philadelphia here in America, that, that name is Brotherly Love. And it was actually named by a man um, who, I, he named it for his brother. And I'm forgetting I had the, the exact phrase in my mind, but it just, it just left me. But he named it for his brother. So that was the situation. He loved his brother enough to name his city that, that he had founded. And here we find that God has planted a church. And there's a church growing. And I wanted to point out the things that are going on inside of this city so that you'll understand that the city of Philadelphia was no different than the other cities in the sense that sin abounded. There was idol worship. There was persecution of the church and Christians. Um, all of this was going on in the city of Philadelphia. They were not exempt from any of it. With that being understood, let's dive into the actual letter to the church, starting in verse number 7. Let's read it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. So, We've got the Lord beginning his letter to the church in Philadelphia in a similar way uh, that he's began all other letters to these churches. How does he begin? He begins by highlighting a few of his characteristics that are important for the church to know um, in specifically as it pertains to the letter that he's writing. What's different about this specific introduction is usually in these letters the Lord highlights a characteristic of himself that he had already highlighted in chapter 1 and he kind of restates it but here he um, highlights unique characteristics that are not stated in chapter 1. We're going to look at a few of them. Number one he says right off the bat he is holy. First thing he wants the church at Philadelphia to know, he is holy. What is holy? Holy is to be set apart. As one author put it, God is holy other. He is holy separate. Separate from what? Separate from sin. God is holy in the sense that he is set apart from sin. It's interesting. If you were to do a poll, and you were to ask around, what is the number one or even number two characteristic of God or of Jesus? 
guarantee you're going to hear people say his number one characteristic is love. Jesus is love. Or you're going to hear them say his number one characteristic is mercy. You might even hear them say grace. Those are his characteristics. But if you study the word of God, you understand that Jesus is, or God, his, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the top two characteristics are holiness and justice. God is holy and God is just. And so right off the bat to this church, he states that he is holy. He is spotless, unblemished, pure, totally righteous. And this is why we need the blood of Jesus on our life. We need the covering of Jesus, the covering that Jesus provides. Why? Because we are commanded, be ye holy as he is holy. But it's impossible to reach that standard of holiness. So we need help. We need the covering of the Lord. Bible college, my teacher put it this way. He said, there's something between you and God. And that is Jesus, the mediator. He's called the mediator between God and man. Between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man stands Jesus. And if you don't have him applied to your life, it's going to be a terrible day when you meet him. Because the holiness of God is severe. And this is what he wants you to know. The church in Philadelphia, right up front, he is holy. The next thing, and it's just as important as the first, he is true. He's holy, he is true. What does he mean he is true? He is genuine, he is real. We, I preached a message before, um, God cannot do everything. Something he can't do, he cannot lie. He is true. He is completely trustworthy. There is no shadow of turning in him. What does that mean? That means that there's no ulterior motive in Jesus. He just states it as it is. He doesn't state opinions. He states commands. He just tells you as it is. I am somebody who has a very skeptical personality. If you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTJ, very analytical. I think through things. I'm always wondering what is behind what's being said. What's the reason that they're saying this? What's the motive? You know, it's always, I'm going over this stuff in my mind. But when it comes to Jesus, in him there is no shadow of turning. He just is who he is. He says what he says, and that's that. You can trust him. You can take what he says to the bank. He is reliable. Someone says, what is truth? This is the answer, and it's very simple. Truth is Jesus' thoughts on any subject. Whatever Jesus thinks about a subject, that is what truth is. That is true. God's thoughts on every subject. Jesus said he is true. It's interesting, the fact that he says that he is holy and he is true reminds us of the fact that living is living right is directly connected to right doctrine. 
right living is directly connected to right doctrine. Because some people will say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live a certain way. Others would say, it doesn't matter what you live like as long as you know what you believe. But Jesus says he is holy and he is true. They're linked. Right character is linked to right doctrine. It matters what we believe. And it's interesting that Jesus says that he is true because in the Gospels, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Not a way, not a truth. Jesus said he is true. He is the truth. We live in a pluralistic society where it's unpopular to state that something is true and everything else is false. And yet that's what Jesus says. Jesus says that he is true. And if he's true, then every man that speaks against Jesus and the way that Jesus teaches is a liar. He is true. The next thing that he says to the church in Philadelphia is, he has the key of David. And I love this. You read Isaiah chapter 22, you come across a story. And you've got King Hezekiah, and King Hezekiah has a royal treasure named Eliakim. The royal treasurer's job is to protect, to guard, to watch over the treasury. What was inside the treasury? Inside the treasury is all the riches of the kingdom. The gold, the silver, everything that is of value, they keep inside the treasury, locked inside of a door. And they've got a man that's in charge of it. He has sole authority over the treasury. You can't get inside of that treasury without going through Eliakim. Eliakim has the key to the door. King Hezekiah called it the key of David. He said he gave the key of David to Eliakim. Eliakim has sole authority to open that door and to close that door. No one else has the power. In order to access that, you've got to go through the royal treasurer. Then we look at this verse. And Jesus says, I have the key of David. What is he saying? There is a treasury. There is a storehouse. There is a place that only Jesus has the authority to access. There is blessing that only Jesus has access to because he has been given the authority over it by having the key. And Jesus says he has the key. What is he saying? He is, he's, he's saying that he is the, the, uh, the sole authority over the church. Yes, but more than that, he's saying that he is the sole authority of all the blessing that can be poured out for the church. Of everything that we have access to, we have got to go through Jesus. Jesus holds the key. Amen. And then he not only says that he holds the key, but I love it. He also has the door. Jesus says, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. 
Jesus is the door and Jesus is the key. He is all there is to access that blessing that we need. Amen. And then he says in the next verse, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it for thou hast a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. First thing, and we've said it before, Jesus reminds every church this and he's going to remind the next church this. And it's simple. I know. I know your works. You cannot hide anything from Jesus. Nothing escapes his gaze. And it's important for the church today to remember that though 2,000 years have passed since the writing of this letter, his eyes have not grown dim. They've not grown weary. Our eyes grow dim the older we get, but Jesus' eyes never grow dim. They are just as alert today as they were 2,000 years ago, and they still see everything that is going on. To the sinner, that is not very comforting, but to the righteous, that is comforting. Because to the righteous, that tells me that he sees everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm wrestling with, everything that I'm going through, and he keeps good books. He keeps good books. He knows. And he's going to reward the sinner and the righteous for his work. I know thy works. The next thing he says, he says that they kept his word and that they didn't deny him. Remember, I wanted to point this out at the beginning. Philadelphia is a sinful city just like the rest. The church in Philadelphia is dealing with persecution. They're dealing with trying to evangelize a sinful city. They're dealing with idol worship all around them. They have all of the same problems as the other churches. And we read that some of the other churches, the first church lost their first love, fighting against sin and heresy and unrighteousness. Then we found another church that compromised. They just kind of live and let live. And then we found another church that didn't just compromise, but they accepted and allowed it among them and tolerated it. And then we've got this church, obedient to the word of the Lord, stayed faithful to him. All of that going on around them, still obedient to God's word still faithful, refused to prostitute themselves and their gifts to the world. And what's more, they were not ashamed to be called one of his. This is one of those churches that receive praise from the praiseworthy, and that is the highest praise. To receive praise from Jesus is the highest praise. And Jesus praises this church and says, I see that amongst an evil world and amongst a society full of evil, you have obeyed my word and you have stayed faithful and you're not ashamed to be called one of my followers. So the question could be asked today, how do we please God? What does it take to please God? 
Because I know that there are people, even Christians, who could go day to day with anxiety in their heart, worried about whether or not they're living life pleasing to God, worried about whether or not they should be doing more for God, stretching themselves further, doing something great and mighty for God. And what's sad is in our desire to do something great, we often fail to even just be ordinary for God. And God tells the church in Philadelphia, He doesn't give them any any super great commendation other than this. You've been obedient and you've been faithful. He doesn't rebuke the church in Philadelphia. There's only two churches out of the seven that did not receive a rebuke from God and these are one of them. And how did they do it? We know they weren't perfect. How do we know they weren't perfect? Because there's no such thing as a perfect people. And they're full of people. So how did they receive this commendation from God? It's simple. They were obedient and they were faithful. Obedient to the word of God. See, pleasing God is not as complicated as we would like it to make it to be in 2021. If somebody wants to know, how do I please God? It's really simple. Obey his word. Live faithfully for Him. What does it mean to live faithfully? It means not to serve idols. Don't have a divided heart. Have a heart that's focused on Him. Have a heart that's centered on Him and in love with Him and His Word. And you can be pleasing to God. Wait a minute, Brother Stacy. Uh, I've never preached a sermon. Are you sure that I can never preach and be, and be pleasing to God? Yes. You can just be obedient and faithful and live a life that other people call ordinary. And when you stand before Jesus, he's going to tell you, just like he tells the greatest preacher that's ever preached, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What do we need to be pleasing to God? We need obedience and faithfulness. You don't have to go evangelize. You don't have to go uh, sell everything and move to a foreign country and preach the word. You don't have to pastor a church. You don't have to ever preach a sermon from a pulpit. You just have to be obedient to God, faithful to Him, and obedient to His word. That's what it takes to be pleasing to God. Now, I want to be clear. I am not speaking against, I am a preacher. I'm not speaking against preaching or pursuing that or having a desire to be a part of the ministry. I'm just saying that you can be a faithful saint and be pleasing to God. You can be an obedient saint and be faithful and and pleasing to God. And that's what it takes. Too often we give ourselves anxiety that we shouldn't have because we expect from ourselves things that God is not even expecting from us. I want to be very clear, and I believe this with everything in me, and there are others who might push back against me on this, and that's okay. I, with every fiber of my being, do not believe that God has got a communication problem. I just believe that with everything inside of me. I believe that if God has something for you outside of what you're already doing, then God will let you know. If God is planning for you to pastor a church, He's not going to make it confusing for you. 
He's not going to make it a word puzzle and, and some kind of riddle where you've got to figure it out. And it, No, God speaks clearly and authoritatively. Whenever He's got a word for you to give to somebody, you'll know what it is. And you'll be able to give it with authority. Otherwise, the will of God is for us to live faithfully and obedient wherever it is that we are, whatever it is that we're doing. And you know better than I know what your gifting is. You know the things that God has put in your heart to do, whether, regardless of what it is, from teaching to policing, whatever it is, your job until God says otherwise is to be in that field and be obedient to his word and faithful to his cause and to his name. That's how you be pleasing to God in 2021. It's really simple. The next thing that God, Jesus says to his church, and I love this. He says they have, and he actually said this first, but I wanted to deal with the others um, before this. He says they have little strength, little power. What does that mean? Now, I've heard all kinds of theories on this, and it's, we overcomplicate the word of God. Brother Jeff, what he's saying is they don't have the same resources as other churches and other places. They have little strength. It was a small congregation that Jesus is writing to. A small congregation. This is going to blow your mind. And the reason this is going to blow your mind is not really that it's profound, but it's because of the condition of 21st century Christianity. See, we put so much emphasis on numbers and statistics and all of that kind of stuff that we forget the things that really do please God. Two churches out of the seven did not receive a rebuke from the Lord. Only two of them. There were seven churches. There were churches that were bigger, churches with more influence, churches with more fame, and they received rebukes. Two churches didn't receive rebukes. Smyrna, Philadelphia. Smyrna was a poor church. If you remember that lesson, poverty stricken, extremely poor, the poorest of the poor. That was Smyrna. Church in Philadelphia, small church, small in number, not very many people. Both of them did not receive one rebuke from the Lord. All they received was praise from Almighty God. Why? Because it takes more than numbers to please God. And it takes more than wealth to please God. It takes obedience and faithfulness. Which is why if you pastor a church of five people, but you've been obedient and faithful to God, you're pleasing to God. And you're just as pleasing as the church that pastors a thousand. Because what matters to God is not size. What matters to God is not numbers and statistics and all of that stuff. What matters to God is pureness of heart and obedience and faithfulness. Yes, God wants a thriving, growing church. My Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to be saved. But the truth is, not everyone is going to accept Him. Not everyone is going to obey the plan of salvation. Not everyone is willing to be baptized in Jesus' name. Not everyone is willing to be filled with his gift of the Holy Ghost. We have free will. And so even though it's his will for everyone to be saved, not everyone will. 
What matters is obedience and faithfulness to God. I believe strongly that we're going to have a new building and soon. And I believe God's going to fill that building. But what's the most important thing is not numbers and not a crowd. The most important thing is to make sure that everybody here goes from here to heaven on that wonderful day. The most important thing is to make sure that everybody here is saved at the end of the day that is obedient and faithful. What are we trying to build here in Purcell, Oklahoma? We're trying to build strong saints, strong believers, people that are in love with the word of God and in love with Jesus, faithful and obedient to his word. That's what matters at the end of the day. He says, you're a church with little strength and that's okay. You're pleasing to God. I want to be pleasing to God. I want to get my mind off of the little strength. I want to get my mind off of the things that don't matter. And instead, I want to focus on the stuff that matters. And I promise you this, if you'll focus on being a better Christian, if you'll focus on being more like Christ, if you'll focus on loving his word and loving him more every day, you're going to grow and you're going to affect everyone around you because that's the way that the gospel works. It gets a hold of you. And then as it gets a hold of you, it starts getting a hold of those around you. I think I mentioned the numbers before, but statistics show that 90% of believers, 90% of people in churches today point their belonging to a church to a friend or a family member that got them into church in the first place. That was their connection. And I'm thankful for all kinds of ways of evangelizing. I'm thankful for reaching out in all kinds of ways that we reach out. But you know who you're most effective to? Your family and your friends and your coworkers. Those people that see you living for God every day, those are the people that you can affect for Jesus Christ. And we ought to. Amen. The next thing he says, he says, I have set before you an open door. The best way to understand this is as a door of opportunity. We don't have time tonight, or I would go through about five different scriptures um, that is the evidence for this. The reason why I believe that what this is talking about is a door of opportunity or a door of ministry. It's, it's mentioned in context this way throughout the New Testament. So get what Jesus is saying here. In the middle of persecution and trials, small church, church that's just obedient, church that's just being faithful, in the middle of a world that is evil and sinful, Jesus steps in and says, I'm giving you an open door. I'm giving you a way to be effective in ministry, effective in your city, effective on the lives that are around you. Remember that Jesus has the key of David. Jesus has access to the storehouse of heaven, to the many blessings. And Jesus tells this church that he has given, he's given them an open door, an open door of opportunity, an open door of blessing, an open door of ministry, if they'll just pursue it. But you know what? Too many times we are so focused on the closed doors around us and the problems that are around us that we don't see the open door. And why is that? 
Because with the open door, you step through a door of opportunity and you enter a hallway of opposition. There's opposition always with that open door of opportunity. And too many people, they just decide, okay, well, if there's opposition, then this must not be the open door. This must not be the will of God. But maybe God's saying that this is the open door and there's opposition, but I'm going to sustain you through that. If you'll just pursue and go through. Amen. So we shouldn't look at opposition as, as being a closed door. Understand that if you're living for God and you're obedient to His Word and you're being faithful to His name, God's going to open doors for you and for your life. Opportunities to minister. Opportunities to minister to friends and to family. And you've got to be ready for that. You've got, you ought to be looking for those just little doors of opportunity to minister and to spread God's word to them, to help somebody. I remember working at UPS and I, I, I worked in a trailer with an atheist. And most of the time, he was making fun of me for being a Christian. But every once in a while, that door would open just a little bit. And he'd ask a question, and, and it was a genuine, heartfelt, serious question. And I would just be able to move right through that door and start talking about things. And sometimes I'm not even sure he was aware of just the door that he was opening, but I was looking for an opening to start talking with this man. That's what we've got to do. As we're going through our daily lives, if we're obedient and faithful to God, God's going to open up some doors. We've just got to be looking for them, looking for those opportunities to walk through those doors. Amen. We serve a God who has the key. Amen. Jesus says in verses 9 through 13, He he shows some of these doors of opportunity that's going to be opened. One of them in verse number 9 anyways. Verse number 9 says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Philadelphia was a community of Christians and Jews and Gentiles. There's a large Jewish community there. And what Jesus was saying is, I'm going to make it so obvious that I've got my hand on yours, on your church and on your lives. Because of your obedience, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to make it. He says it right here at the end. There's going to be no denying the love that God has for the church in Philadelphia. And because of that, it's going to open up revival amongst the Jews in that city. Jews that were antagonistic to the word of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jews that really didn't want anything to do. He was, he was saying that there's souls in your city. There are souls right now persecuting the church, but I'm going to open up a door of revival to those in that city. And God did it. And there was a revival amongst the Jewish community in Philadelphia. That same kind of thing is what we've got to pay attention for in the 21st century. Doors of opportunity in the community. Right now, our world is suffering. And, and it's, it's, it's really a sad thing what's happening to our country. It's sad the powers that be and the way that they are destroying this country. But the church has got to look around in this moment, in this opportunity, and start looking for the open doors. The, the 
country is not in good shape. It's not in a position we want it to be in. I'm praying every day for America. But as I'm praying, I just want to know where are the doors for the church? Because I know that there are doors that are opening. If there's an obedient, faithful church, then there are doors that are going to be opening. And we've got to be willing to walk through those doors and to reach people. There will be people that would have never asked about this church, but are going to ask about this church because of the climate in America right now. The situation that we're going through. You've got co-workers that five years ago would have never asked about the church and what we believe, but today, because of the situation and the climate, they're wanting to know what is it that you've got that I need. Look for an open door. God's going to provide the open doors. Amen. That's verse number nine. Verse number 10, because thou hast kept the word, of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So because they've persevered, because they have kept the word, because they have hung in there, and it's a, it's a important thing. It's a great thing that they, they hung in there in their hour of temptation their hour of, of trial, they hung in there. And Jesus says, I've got something waiting for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you from the hour of temptation. What is the hour of temptation? Most believe that the hour of temptation is referring to the tribulation. That day of wrath and judgment that is coming upon all the world. Jesus says, if you're obedient to my word and you're staying faithful and you persevere through all of the trials and the mess and the madness that's around us, he says, I'm going to withhold you from that day. I'm going to keep you from that day. Amen. That hints to a pre-tribulation rapture. And I'm thankful for it. And some might say, well, these people, they died. So God didn't keep them from uh, the day of tribulation because they never reached that day. But my Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. So Jesus was specifically talking about the rapture here when he says, I'm going to keep the church from that day. I'm going to keep you from that day, from that day of wrath. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. Jesus is keeping his promise. And I believe on that day, he's going to keep his promise to the church of Philadelphia that the dead in Christ, they're going to rise first. Amen. Next, he says, behold, I come quickly. Now, this is, can also be confusing. He's talking about his imminent return. You know, I heard uh, somebody say to me one time, the reason they love post-tribulation rapture, believing in post-tribulation, I kid you not, this is exactly what was said to me, and I... Honestly, I didn't even know how to respond because it was so wild. They said that the reason that uh, they love post-tribulation rapture, their favorite thing about it is the fact that they know Jesus is not coming back tomorrow. And I'm like, man, because my Bible says he's coming quickly. Imminent return. And that, that's not talking about seconds or hours. What that's talking about is Jesus is saying it's the next event on his prophetic timetable. 
It could happen any day. Nothing else needs to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back. He can come back at any moment, at any time. That's what he means by he's coming quickly. Be ready. Amen. That's the next event on the prophetic timetable. The next thing we find, he says, hold fast. Verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So we believe in the imminent return of Christ. But what do we have to do? One of uh, a teacher of mine that I love dearly, he said a question that just got a hold of me, deep inside of me. He said, Jesus could come back any moment. Or, and there's that or, he could not come back for another 50 years. How are you going to live? And that's the question, right? How are you going to live? Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. It's the next event on the prophetic timetable. We're all, and we've been waiting for 2,000 years, looking up for Jesus, waiting for that moment where he comes and calls his church back. But we've got to ask this question. Jesus, in his wisdom, followed this up. Behold, I come quickly. And then the very next thing is hold fast. What are you going to do if Jesus decides to delay his coming for just a little bit longer? I hope the answer is you're going to hold fast. Hold fast to what? Hold fast to righteousness. Hold fast to holiness. Hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to love for God. Be obedient to his word. Faithful to his name. Hold fast. Hold on. Amen. And that, that has never been any more necessary than right now. With the world as it is and everything going crazy, it would be really easy just to let go. But we can't do it. Now is not the time. Now is the hour to hold on and not just hold on, but to fight for what we believe in. Stand on his word. Something's going to happen. If you hold on, he says in the next verse, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. Jesus says to him that overcometh, I love this, he says I will make a pillar, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will go no more out. What does this mean? Remember at the beginning, I told you that this is a city of lots of temples. Temples everywhere. So many temples, it's called Little Athens. What would happen? People would gather together and they would worship in these temples made of stone. Something else that we pointed out at the beginning about the city. The city had frequent earthquakes. It was built near volcanoes. Frequent earthquakes happen in this city. So in the middle of their worship, in the middle of their, te- uh, their temple worship, earthquake happens. 
You look up, you're in a place that is stone. Stones start shaking. Rocks start moving. What do you do? You definitely don't hang around. You take off. You run. Everybody flees from the temple. They're very aware of this in the city of Philadelphia. And what does the Lord promise the church that's in this city? One day, if you'll hold on, if you'll remain obedient, and you'll stay faithful, and you overcome the evil one, whenever I rapture you out of here, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you shall no more leave out. What does that mean? There will be nothing that can shake you that would cause you to have to flee from the temple. He's offering them security. He's offering them a place of safety. Jesus, on that wonderful day, whenever he raptures his church out of here, we're going to a place where we don't have to worry anymore about our faith being shaken or the world around us being shaken. We're going to be stable. And thank God for that day. I can't wait for that day. Amen. If you want to stand, I'm coming to a close. If the music would like to come. He says that he's going to put a new name on them. He's going to write on them the city of their God. It's interesting. We're going to be new citizens. Citizens of a new Jerusalem. A new city. A new identity. A new name. You're not who you were. You get to, you get to step into heaven fresh. New body new person, new creation. And you get to serve God for eternity. What do we have? We have access to Jesus for eternity. That's our reward. An eternity with Jesus. But what do we have to do? We have to remain faithful. We have to remain obedient to His Word. That's what it takes. I realize this may not have been one of those lessons that have us bouncing off the walls or anything like that. This is one of those churches that only good things are said about. You don't have to worry about a rebuke that drives you to conviction and puts tears in your eyes and and makes you want to get right with God. This is just one of these encouraging messages to what it takes to please God is obedience to His Word and faithfulness to His name. And it's really that simple and it's not hard. It doesn't take spiritual jumping jacks. It just takes obedience. I want to be a church that's obedient. And if we are, if we can just, as the pressure gets turned up in this hour that we're living in, the pressure's going to get turned up on the church. As it gets turned up, if we can just remain faithful and obedient, the evidence of the hand of God on that church that is obedient and faithful in that hour revival will come people will notice but what's it going to take it's going to take us being obedient and faithful I wonder if we could just find a place to pray tonight we can recommit ourselves to the word of God faithfulness to God and love for God would you do that right now would you find a place to pray